Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome back to our live broadcast, evening Dhamma session. So I'm continuing on from last night. I thought we'd move on to the Buddha's second discourse. When, when when learning about the Buddha it's it's quite common for the story to end at his enlightenment, sometimes maybe end at his first discourse, but it's far more interesting what happened after his enlightenment and after his first discourse. When he first taught The, uh, the five ma the five ascetics were impressed, but only one of them became a sotapanna. Only one of them really understood what the Buddha was talking about. The others may have had some idea, but uh, or or some idea of how to put it into practice, but they weren't able to put it into practice and and understand it and realize the teaching for themselves while the Buddha was teaching. So the Buddha had to stay with them And he stayed with them for five days Working with them individually to, you know, to Addressing the individual challenges Helping them through their meditation until all five of them became uh, sotapanna. At which point the Buddha taught the second discourse. So here it was the same audience, but now they were in a position to really understand the Buddha's teaching on a deeper level. And so Something we have, something that this tells us is that this teaching is not really a beginner teaching. And if you really want to understand the second discourse of the Buddha, you really have to have done some intensive meditation. You have to have taken the time to really get a clear understanding of reality. So for those of you who are here practicing intensively, it'll be quite useful, I think. For those of you at home, well, for some of you, you've been practicing for some time. For those of you who may be new to the teaching, I'll try to give a sort of a 
more basic and, and easy to understand introductory teaching so we'll use this it's still a good basis for understanding the Buddhist idea of meditation so the second discourse is about the five aggregates many of you I'm sure are familiar with this idea this um, set of concepts that the Buddha laid out and so that the the idea behind this sutta is not to address the question of whether there is a self or there isn't a self because that question is not useful it's not actually um it's not actually an answerable question It's just like asking Is there a God or isn't there a God? It's perhaps even worse because With, uh, with God Ideally, theoretically you could, you could have some contact with God and God might speak to you Or, or, or do something But the self Really is meaningless But if I were to tell you that there is a self, what would that mean? Right? Is there any way for you to verify whether there is a self or not? It's always just going to be your belief. It's always just going to be your belief. If I tell you there isn't a self, what are you going to do with that either? Right? Is there a way for you to understand that there is no self, to verify that there is no self? Just because you haven't seen one Just because you haven't found one, right? It can never be something It's not a question that's amenable to understanding and verification The self is not a falsifiable claim So it's not a scientific claim Meaning you can't verify or deny it So we don't ask that question Simply not a useful question Instead we look at what is there And we try to understand it And one of the very important ways of understanding The things that do exist That we can experience That we can verify as, as coming into being Is whether they are self whether they, there's any reason to think of them as self Because um, whether there is a self or not Isn't important But we do cling to many, many things As me, mine, under my control Without even thinking about them Hey, this is me, this is mine We use them, we, we interact with them in a way that makes them uh, in a way that, that implies or, or there's an implicit belief or, or conception of them as self. And so the first thing the Buddha does is make this jump from me and mine and the self and the being to our experiences. I mean, he's dealing with people who have begun to understand experience. So 
they're familiar with this when he asks form when he says about form rupa he says form is not self now these monks have been meditating on form they've been meditating on the movements of their bodies and the movements of the body during the breath and so on they've been meditating on the heat and the cold all of this is is the physical the form aspect of experience And we take form to be self, right? Instead of experiencing it as moments of heat and cold and hardness and softness and so on, we experience it as our body. This is a body, my body. Yes. All of these experiences, when they come together, this is me, this is mine, this I am. Right? So we have this conception when we look at the body, when we look at what's really there, we see experiences that arise and cease and these experiences are are not me or not mine. How do we know this? Because they're not amenable to our control. They cause affliction. If something were truly me and mine, then we should be able to say, hey, let it be thus, let it not be thus. We should be able to say, I don't want to be cold, I'm not going to be cold. I should be able to say, I don't want to be short, I want to be tall, I don't want to be fat, I want to be thin. Which is probably really, um, well, I don't want to get into it. I mean, it's a problem with the, the attachment to the body and attachment to our body. Because it's not something that actually exists And we get really hung up on it In so many ways The second one is feelings Vedana We say Vedana Vedana bhikkave anatta Vedana is also non-self No feelings. We're very much attached to our feelings. We have pain, and it's my pain. I say to you, no, the pain is not you, it's not yours. That's not really how we look at pain. You might think I'm crazy because it's not you that's feeling my pain. I'm the one who's feeling it, and I feel it, and boy, does it hurt. It's remarkable that the pain isn't actually self. It's remarkable when you do start to understand this and see how there's really no reason to be upset about it. It's not self. There's no connection to a self there. The experience arises and ceases. That's it. We can't control our feelings. We're not in, in charge of them, and this is how we live our lives running away from pain, running towards pleasure, grasping and clinging and, and, and holding on for dear life to all the comfortable and pleasant feelings. And as a result, becoming less and less satisfied, less and less happy because, because we can't get what we want. 
because we need and we yearn for it and we become less and less flexible less and less adaptive to the change of, of feelings the third is sanya so sanya is also non-self sanya causes affliction sanya is memory or recognition when you remember things in the past or when you recognize things in the present when a person is afraid of spiders sees spiders give a simple example they recognize the spiders mm. when when we have memories of things that happened in the past we're very much attached to those memories Good ones, bad ones. But we can't only have the bad, the good memories. We we can't we can't be free from the bad memories. Again, it's this is very much about not about escaping our situations our experiences, but learning how to see them for what they are. Non-self just means it is what it is. It's this powerful change of perception from clinging and identifying with experiences to just seeing them for what they are. Just observing them, just being here and now. Without judgment, without expectation so that's sanya the fourth one is sankara sankara is sankara is our reactions this is the real where the real problem comes in so sankara is when you judge something it's a lot of different things but most um, prominently it's when you like or dislike something And we think of our likes and dislikes As, you know, I like this, I like that I dislike this, I dislike that So much of our our perceptions And all of these conceptions of me and mine Are because we've just never looked We've just assumed, we've just been told We use language and our um, Ordinary way of looking at things is me, mine, self uh, but when we look if I ask the meditators here is, is liking self no I mean are you in charge of the liking do you only like when you want to like want when you want to want what about disliking are you in charge of that Okay, I'm going to dislike this. No, I'm I'm not going to dislike this. There's no switch to turn it off and on. It's not me, it's not mine. I don't have this power over it. It's quite um, alarming as a meditator to realize this, to realize that our emotions are not under our control, that we're not in charge of them. And the fifth one is vijnana. So altogether these make up 
um, who we are, really. I mean, they're the five aspects of experience, really. The fifth one, vijnana, means the experience itself, consciousness. When you see something and you're conscious of it, there's all these five things involved. But the fifth one is the actual awareness of it. And so you can't say, let me be aware of this, let me not be aware of that. Right? Someone's yelling and making noise, well, I don't want to be aware of that, let me not have to experience that. Five aggregates are like an affliction. They're like a, um, a torture device or a prison. I mean, that's fairly negative, I suppose, but there's something that's that's imposed upon us in a sense. Although in a deeper sense, we impose them on ourselves, but nonetheless, we have no choice in the matter. We're not in charge. We're not able to turn on and turn off our experiences. We learn that these experiences, these aspects, or these aspects of reality, we learn that they're simply things that arise and cease. They're not anything to do with me or mine. So he explains this to them. He gives them a one-way teaching and then he does something um, to take it to the next level and to the sense where well maybe they accept intellectually what he's saying but it's still not very clear to them it's still something that they're struggling with and so he tries to make it clear and this is where he starts to bring up the three characteristics right so non-self appears to be most important he's talked about suffering in the last one but now he's focusing in on non-self because that's really the um, the, really the key seeing experiences arising and ceasing is not having any, having any substance or identity and now he says well how we understand non-self so he asks is form uh, predictable or constant or is it unpredictable and inconstant is it certain or uncertain is what he asks Nichangwa anichangwa. Stable, predictable. He asks the monks. And the monks say, Anichang bante. Impermanent. And he says, So if it's impermanent, well, then it is. Is it. Is it something that satisfies you or doesn't satisfy you? Meaning, can you uh, fix it? Can you keep it the way you want or and, and prevent it from being the way you don't want? And they say, no, it's dukkhang bhante. Meaning it's unsatisfying, it's stressful in fact. look at your form and watch your experiences you'll see that there's nothing about it that's satisfying there's nothing about it that you can cling to even just watching your stomach it's a good example because we watch our stomach and we have this expectation that somehow it's going to be the way we want it's going to be smooth I think some, something's wrong 
I can't meditate. I'm not a good meditator because my stomach is not rising and falling smoothly the way it should. Right? The way the way it should because we want it to, therefore it should. So what's wrong really is that it's not self. And when you see that, the Buddha said, well then you should regard it. If you see it changing like this, changing by itself, you see that you can't fix it and that it's not it's only a cause of, of disappointment when you try to make things right then should you say that it's me and mine is it proper to say that form is me or mine no hetang bante no indeed venerable sir and he says the same for feelings when feelings are not amenable to our control we want to be happy we feel pain try to get rid of the pain it doesn't go away Try to hold on to the happiness, it does go away. Start to see that the reality is just, there's an order to it. And there are ways of seeking and, and attaining happiness, but you can't control it. You can't hold on to that happiness and say, okay, now stay. No, there's quite clearly a reason for the happiness. Maybe you sought out something that brought you pleasure. But that's it. Cause and effect doesn't stay, it doesn't last, it's not under your control. So he said, feelings are impermanent, and if they're impermanent, then they're unsatisfying. You can't cling to them. You just suffer when you cling to them. And so they too should not be, should not be clung to as self. Netang mama neso hamasmi. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. And memories, we shouldn't cling to memories. So he's asking them, he's asking them, are memories certain or uncertain? Predictable or unpredictable? Oh no, they're unpredictable. You can't be in charge of what you remember and what you don't, what you conceive and what you don't. He says they should also be seen as non-self. Our emotions, our consciousness, even our consciousness. We don't choose what we're conscious of. It's unpredictable. Because it's unpredictable, it's unsatisfying. Meaning happiness can't come from any of these. None of these can be our refuge. Our experiences can't be our refuge. There has to be something beyond that. In fact, the knowledge of non-self is the greatest refuge. Once you stop clinging to experience, it doesn't mean you stop experiencing. But you stop, um, you stop diversifying or you stop extrapolating upon experience. Experience just is experience. I mean, that's what it is. The whole idea that it might be me or mine and the whole concept of trying to control and trying to be in charge that's all on us, that's not real it's not intrinsic to reality and this is very important the idea of what is intrinsic to reality and what is just our own belief, view as we've gotten to the point or we get to the point where, where our beliefs and our views 
have a life of their own and they take on importance, which they shouldn't. A belief of you should have no importance beyond its basis in our experience and our ability to verify it. So he says, all form, all feeling, all perception, all uh, emotion, all consciousness, past, future, present, gross, subtle, internal, external, inferior, superior, far or near. You should see it all with wisdom, with right understanding. Ne tang mama, this is not mine. Ne soha masmi, I am not this. Ne so tati, this is not myself. And he says, when a person sees this, so this is a, this is about actually meditating. I mean, it's quite clear what we're talking about here is looking at your experience, watching it arise and cease, and seeing for yourself impermanence, and therefore the inability to satisfy. I mean, can't be the... It's inability to be a refuge for us, and therefore non-self. When we stop looking at things as, this is my feeling, poor me, with this pain, or poor me with this thought, or poor me with this experience. And likewise, feeling good about ourselves for having this experience, for being like this, for being like that, ego and conceit and all that, when we get rid of all that, and we just experience things as they are. We let go, so we have this idea, this this concept of nibida. Nibida is a very important turning point in a meditator's practice. So you get to the point where you begin to shift, whereas your whole being and your whole inclination is finding happiness in experiences, getting the happy experiences, avoiding the unhappy ones. You have this sense of dispassion, or you lose your passion, you lose your ambition. It, it starts to drain away, mainly because you you hit in the meditation. You'll hit your head against the wall, figuratively speaking, again and again and again, trying and trying and trying to fix things, until you start to realize, I'm not going to fix this. This is unfixable. This is uncontrollable. It isn't even me. And you start to let it go. Nibindati. Rupas mimpi nibindati. Becomes disenchanted with form. Vedana supi nibindati. In regards to Vedana, one becomes disenchanted. In regards to Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana. And this is the turning point because one begins to find real peace. One begins to be at peace with oneself, be at peace with reality, without having to change it, having to fix it, having to control it. 
with the fading of passion one is liberated rago with liberation with freedom there is the knowledge i'm free usitang brahmacharyang kina jati usitang brahmacharya Katangkaraniyang Done is what should be done There's an understanding that Yes, I found the right way There's a realization That you have found The true way out of suffering Which is quite simple it means to really just be here and now To stop judging To stop reacting To stop Piling on baggage To all of our experiences To learn how to just experience them And learn why why uh, why it's well why we suffer to learn the difference between the way we cling to things and to simply experience things as they are then we know we've done what needs to be done and when the Buddha gave this discourse these five ascetics became arahant. They became liberated from the taints through clinging no more. It means they were practicing while he was teaching this, and they were re they were really ready. I mean, these guys had been living in the forest for years, developing strong concentration. But um, during the time, those five days, they progressed through the stages of knowledge. And when the Buddha gave this talk, they all were able to, over the course of the talk, it's quite remarkable, I suppose, they were all able to become enlightened. For the rest of us, you get this gives you an idea of, especially those of you who are doing intensive meditation, it gives you an idea of where we're headed. And Nibida especially, but there's many other stages of knowledge that we can delineate, but most important is to see things, just see them as they are. You're not trying to become anything or you're not really concerned with Buddhism or the Buddha. You're concerned with you and your reality. You're concerned with the reactions and the baggage that we have that we carry around that makes our experiences so much more than they need to be and causes us so much more pain and suffering than is than is warranted by the experience so there you go a little bit about the second discourse without getting into too much technical detail thank you all for coming out if there are any questions I can maybe take some questions I'm rather particular about the questions I answer, so beware. What if your mind doesn't wander and there is no struggle? Do you still need to meditate? A better question is if you don't suffer. If you have no suffering, 
And if you have a clear awareness of reality, then no, you don't need to meditate. Is control important in the worldly functional sense, keeping a train schedule, for instance? Yes, I mean, it's not really control. It's just cause and effect and understanding what comes next. Okay, let's take the questions from the site. I guess I have to go over there because I'm the one who has to turn them on and off. So, we prioritize, as I said, medita uh, questions on our meditation site. Bhante, is your recent TEDx talk available to view online? Uh, they said it'd be up in a couple months. Now, keep in mind that I was sick and I, I hadn't had time to prepare for it. So, you'll see. I mean, it's, it's, I think it starts off a little bit wonky, but I think I, I think it was okay. So it will be online, and uh, I think there's something to it that's useful. If they decide to publish it, I'm not sure if they publish them all, but they said a couple of months, so it was in, it's like March 5th or something, right? So no, probably not up yet. And they said they'd let us know, so I haven't heard anything yet. Online meditation course sign up. It's in the menu of this app. Hopefully someone's talked to you over in chat, but If you manage to post a question, it means you're on the right track. You have to go to the three bars in the top left of the screen and check out the schedule. That's what you're looking for. How long do you suggest someone should meditate and how much experience with the teaching should one have before trying to ordain as a monk? Hmm, well becoming a monk is a whole different issue. I mean, I don't have any real, real advice for that. Uh, I think it's very much something you should talk to with the person who might ordain you. So, you know, I think it's... I think you're probably better off focusing on a community know and becoming a monk will just be a part of the process of getting into that community rather than just saying I want to become a monk I'm going to go to Asia because it's not really going to be the way you think it is I mean unless you get really lucky you're most likely just to fall in with a bunch of who knows what you'll fall in with it's not really how it works much better to find Buddhism in a community and then consider ordaining through that. Hmm. No, these are not my topics, so that question's going. Okay, those are the ones on the site. How are we doing over here? I want that scroll. Are mudras necessary? Nope, don't teach them. 
if there's nothing to note, then is the default object the rising and falling of the stomach? Can be, yeah, it's a good one. It can also just be that you're sitting or standing or walking or lying down. Or you can just note nothing, nothing, or knowing, knowing, knowing that there's nothing. If you feel calm, you can say calm, calm. All right, that's all the questions I'm willing to answer from there. How are we doing over here? Oh, Dar's copying them. Sanka has a question. If we define self as anything that is under our total control, can't we say that there is no self? Isn't the validity of any such statement dependent on the meaning we give to the word self? Oh, maybe. But if you're asking whether whether you can say that there is no soul, there is no soul, you missed the point of my talk such a question is useless such an answer is also useless say that's all the questions for tonight then I know I've, I've ignored a couple but you have to be clear that I'm not answering just any old questions so I've answered some thank you all for coming out see you all next time <laughs>